Well, as always, church, it is good to be with you this morning. Uh, My name is Tyler David. I am the downtown campus pastor and one of the preachers here at the Austin Stone. We're glad that you're here today. Uh, Today, we're finishing up our gospel and series. Over the past four weeks, we've been teaching on the gospel and how it applies to different areas of our life. And the hope of this sermon series has been this, to make explicit, to make clear that the gospel has amazing implications for our lives. The gospel is not some just eternal truth for us, though it is, but this truth is not limited to certain events or certain days or certain people or certain seasons, but this gospel applies to every area of our life. We try to make this clear by showing you from the scriptures how the gospel changes the way we deal with depression and how the gospel changes the way we deal with sexuality, how the gospel changes how we deal with money, hoping that these give you a sort of framework going forward, how you can apply the gospel to every area of your life. And for our last week, our last week of this series, we're covering the gospel and work. The gospel and work. I've been so excited to teach this to you all week because I don't think we understand or really grasp God's value and his care for our work. That the thing you do for 40, 50, 60, some of you 70 hours a week, God actually cares about. That he made you to do the job that you're doing. That in a very real way, God has called you to your profession, to your field, and to your industry. God cares about our work. But in the church, in the church often what can be portrayed is that God only cares about a few jobs. That God only calls people to a few jobs in the pastoral ministry. That he doesn't really care a ton about things outside of the church. That yes, we all may have the same faith. Yes, we all may have the same Father and same Savior and same Spirit. And all been saved by grace through faith. And all of us know God. But often the narrative in the church is that he only calls a few to really important work. The narrative in the church so often is that only uh, pastors get called to, to work, but not business people to industry. Often that's the perception that we have in the church. You see this clearly in how we talk about calling and how we talk about calling in the church. See, pastors are called to ministry, but not business people to industry. Preachers are called to speak, but not teachers to educate. I wonder if someone said, God, if, God, if they told you, hey, God's calling me to be a plumber, I wonder if you'd tell them to go, I don't know if you heard God correctly on that one. Does he call people to be plumbers? I don't know. See, we don't think God calls us to our jobs. We think it's just for a couple of people, but that's not true. That's not true. See, we have a great misunderstanding about how someone is called and what someone is called to. Think about how we talk about calling. Think, how we, think about how we talk about calling in the church. Often it's to ministry or some nonprofit, and the person always says, there was this moment where I knew God had called me. This moment where I knew he had called me to this certain profession, to this ministry. And as someone who, who feels called by God in what I'm doing, I can relate to that. I, I had moments where my desire to pastor and to teach the word of God was almost palpable. But truth be told, truth be told, the clarity of these moments fade. The clarity of these moments fade away. And more often than not, calling and determining your calling is often a gradual process that's solidified over time. It's a gradual process solidified over time. This is my story. This is my story being called in the ministry. Okay, I remember two moments in particular about five years ago 
where I really felt con- convinced and, and convicted that I had to do this uh, job as pastor for, for the foreseeable future. There's one moment where me and Lauren were at a coffee shop and we're doing our premarital counseling homework. It was the first time that we realized that I had this great desire for pastoral ministry. Then another moment where it's crystal clear when we're on our honeymoon and Lauren's at the beach and I'm in the room reading Jeremiah. As I'm reading through it, I'm, I'm longing, everything in me is longing to teach the word of God the way this man taught the word of God. And I had these amazing moments. But as I pursued this job, all of you have had those moments where you felt, okay, I really have to do this particular profession. But as you pursue the job, what happens? Those moments fade. And in my own story, I often question whether God had really called me to be a pastor, really called me to be a full-time preacher of God's word. I really questioned it. And it hasn't been until this past year or so where I've become convinced that God has called me to this profession for the, for the foreseeable future. But here's the thing. I didn't have any more amazing moments. Like other than those two moments about five years ago, I haven't had any more amazing moments. I don't have a word from the Lord or a vision or a dream. I didn't. No, what, what had happened over time is I became more convinced of my desires, of my abilities, and my opportunities. See, calling for me, and I think normally for most people, calling is determined over time as you process through what you actually want to do, what you're actually gifted to do, and what you have the opportunities to do. Why do we think this calling is just limited to pastors? Why do we think this calling is just limited to people like me? Can you not feel this same exact thing, go through the same exact process to be an engineer? To trade stock, to be a stay-at-home mom? Can you not have the exact same calling from God that I have? I mean, think about in, in the scriptures how God calls his people to all different types of vocations, not just ministry. Think about uh, when he brought his people back from slavery in Babylon. He needed a wall built. He needed an engineer. He needed a manager to make sure this thing was built. So he called Nehemiah. He said, Nehemiah, come build this wall, manage it, make sure it gets done. He appointed him to that task. Think about as Moses and the people are wandering in the wilderness. God wants a tabernacle where his presence is going to dwell. He wants it to be perfect and beautiful and detailed. So we call some artists to create it. No, in the scriptures, God paints a very different picture of work. There are not less important jobs for God's people. There's no sacred and secular divide for God. No, God creates his people and he calls his people all of us to different professions and vocations. He not only calls some to pastor and to preach, but he calls others to be entrepreneurs and business people and custodians and construction workers and artists and in the medicine. He calls all of his people to our professions. And so the way I want to tackle this subject today is I want to show you that your work's important to God. I want to show you that part of the gospel is him rescuing your work from sin. And this, this topic is massive in the scriptures. God talks about it a lot. But the way I want to address it is by looking at the larger narrative of the Bible. The larger kind of story arc, if you will, of the scriptures. Because this gospel, this gospel that Jesus lived the life you should have lived. And he died the death you should have died. And he rose in victory over sin and Satan and death for anyone who would trust in him. This gospel, it's the centerpiece of a larger story. It's the centerpiece of a larger story that God is weaving together for his glory. See, the story of history is broken into four main categories. Okay, think about the the story of the scriptures and the the human history is headed towards a place 
where it fits into four main categories. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. This is the arc, the trajectory of history. God created everything good, but then we fell and sin ruined all that was good. But Jesus came and showed up and redeems us and rescues us, and one day he'll restore everything to the way it should be. We're going to look at work in these different stages. We're going to look at the creation of work, how the fall affected work, how Jesus redeems work, and how ultimately he'll restore it one day. And I'm going to say this as well before we get started. This topic is very, very large in the Bible. And there's no way I can cover every single thing about it. And you'll have questions or thoughts that come to your mind that you'll want to pursue further. And I could uh, want to recommend a resource for you called Every Good Endeavor by Tim Keller. It's a great book. I read this book. It helped me a lot in thinking through the topic of work. We'll have some in the foyer um, if you want to buy one on the way out. But it's a great book. I'd highly recommend it. Let's get started. Open your Bibles to Genesis 1. If you have a Bible, open it to Genesis 1. And we're going to look at the creation of work, what God created work to be. And when you open up the Bible to Genesis 1, if you'd never read the Bible before, you open up to Genesis 1, one of the very first things that you learn about God is that he's a worker. He's one who works. Look at Genesis 1, 1. If you don't have a Bible, it'll be on the screen behind me. Genesis 1, 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light and saw that it was good. The first thing you learn about God is he's working. He's creating. He's molding. He's shaping a physical world from nothing. The scriptures say the earth was without form and void. And God, like a master craftsman, comes in and creates it into something beautiful and useful. That idea of without form and void is supposed to be there's chaos. And God sees chaos and he comes in and turns it into rhythm and pattern and beauty. Our God is a worker. And as you look at the creation narrative, as God works, you learn two things about his work. His work is characterized by two different things, joy and service. God's work is characterized by joy and service. Look at Genesis 1.31. Genesis 1.31. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. See, when God creates, when he's working, he enjoys his work. When you read the creation account of Genesis 1, what you see is God, it'll say God made this, and he made this, and he made this, and it was good. And he blessed them, saying... What God is doing, he's speaking to his creation, enjoying his work. He's expressing his delight in what he's doing. At the very end, he looks back after six days, he looks back at all that he's made, at all that he's made, and he says, it's very good. It's very good. He enjoys his work. But his work's not just defined by joy, it's defined by service. Think about it. God made the world to display his glory, but he didn't need it. He didn't need creation. He was already happy forever in himself. He was content and complete in himself. Him him creating the world is not out of a lacking in him, but out of fullness in him. It's out of fullness he creates, and it's for the benefit of his creatures. He makes the world so we can see his glory. See, his creation, his work is in service to us. So God's a worker, and he works in joy and in service. So when he makes image bearers, when he makes humanity to reflect what he is like, obviously he makes them workers. He gives Adam and Eve a job to do. 
They have work to do. So they can be a physical picture to the rest of creation as to what God is like. They're image bearers. So what this tells us about humanity, what it tells us about you, as a human, you were made to work. That you can't know what it means to be human without work. It's part of who we are. It's in the fabric of who God made us to be as image bearers. You weren't made to do nothing and sit around all day and accomplish zero. You're made to create and to work and to build and to accomplish things. You're a worker. Why? Because God's a worker and we reflect his image. We were made to work. See, work is not given as a consequence of sin. It's not given as a consequence of sin. Now you have to work. No, work was given as a gift and is in the very goodness of creation. And what's really interesting um, about the first job God gives God doesn't give the first job, okay, Adam, you're going to be a pastor and a teacher of the Bible. No. The first job he gives is a gardener. You're going to be a gardener. You're going to take care of this earth. You're going to tend and cultivate the land. The first job is one where him, Adam and Eve, are shaping the physical world with their own hands. So the rest of the image bearers that they're going to create together have places to live. See, work was made for their joy and for the service of others. God gave them a real role to play and real work to do. Humans were made to work. It's part of who we are. That's what God created work to be, for our joy and for the service of others. But then we fell. God had this amazing plan for us, and then we rebelled. We rebelled against God on a path of self-discovery, finding our own meaning and our own purpose and our own joy and our own life outside of God, and what happened? It ruined everything. It ruined everything because nothing else can bear the weight of being God other than God himself. So we rebelled and everything fell. Everything was ruined. All the goodness was taken away even in our work. Even in our work. You can see really clearly how integral it is to, to, work being, to be human and working by the way God judges humanity. So when Adam and Eve rebelled, the way he curses things, the main thing he curses, the main thing he judges them with is their work. Look at Genesis 3, verse 16. Genesis 3, verse 16, we're going to see God respond to their sin and how our work is affected by the fall. Genesis 3, 16 says this. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. In Genesis 1, God gives Adam and Eve two main jobs. Two main jobs. To make image bearers and to cultivate the earth, to subdue it. Two main jobs, and what does he tell them? Those two jobs just got much more difficult. Your rebellion just ruined your ability to work. See, they can't reflect his image like they used to. See, they were image bearers designed to show the world what the invisible God looked like. They're designed to work in joy and service, but now because they sinned, their work's characterized by pain and selfishness. By pain and selfishness. See, joy was meant to be, I mean, work was meant to be a joyful exercise. A joyful exercise, but now it's just a task of futility. Work was meant to be something where we were serving other people, but now it's just about bettering ourselves. 
See, what happens when we lost God in the garden, all his gifts lost their life and vitality. All the things you and I still um, try to enjoy today, they lose their life and vitality outside of God because he's the centerpiece of joy in life. See, we lost a lot of things in the garden when we sinned. And I remember at my very first job, um, I experienced the fall of work firsthand, okay? My very first job is very obvious to me, work is not very good anymore. And so when I was 16, my first job, I worked at a veterinarian clinic. I worked at a veterinarian clinic, and my basic job was to take care of the 50-plus dogs and cats and do whatever they needed me to do. It was the worst job in the world, without question, okay? My, my first day, I'm begging my dad, please let me quit this job. It's the worst. He wouldn't let me because he's a good dad. Because this job was so horrible because I would sit back all day with all these animals and the smell, okay? It was, it, it was their nastiness of their cages. You can, you, know, you can imagine what that means. Mixed with the smell of chemicals from the groomer in the back. I, I, one time I picked up an 80-pound dog and then my boss yelled at me in front of other people because I wasn't holding the dog properly. One, one point in time I almost passed out because I was giving, holding a dog down or giving it a blood transfusion and almost, I got wide almost fell to the floor. And often, because I was 16, I didn't realize, hey, when you go to work, you should bring a snack or something. So I'd be starving all day, sneaking little bits of food from other people's stuff in the, in the refrigerator. My bad. Um, <laughs> Got to eat. Got to eat. Um, and I, it was obvious to me, work has fallen from grace. I'm taking care of dogs. This is the worst. And the only good thing about this job, the only good thing about this job was when I got to walk the dogs. Only good thing. It meant fresh air for me. I got far away from my mean boss. It was the only reprieve that I had from this horrible job. I look forward to this every day. Well, I did until one day when I lost a dog. Um, so I'm walking this German shepherd and this chow, and, and everything's normal. Everything's normal. I get to the back of the building. I, I come up, and I pull on the German shepherd's leash. As soon as I pull, the leash breaks. And both of us freeze. He freezes like, I'm free. And I freeze like, you're free. And so I start freaking out. So I go to grab his collar, but he runs around the front of the building. And so I'm panicking. I just lost a dog. But then I realize, oh, no, I let go of the other leash, and now the other dog's free. So I turn around, and the child's sitting there very nervously and skittishly kind of staring at me. So I'm thinking, I've got, I can't lose two dogs. And so I have to get this dog. And he's, it's sitting there, and Unfortunately, right next to our building is a major road, about six lanes of traffic, and it's rush hour. He's up. It's okay. Um, it's happy ending. <laughs> Easy, Peter. You know? um, so there's the six lanes right there. And so I'm thinking, I have to get this dog. It's, it's going to run right into traffic. So I go to grab its collar. It takes off. Goes across. It misses two cars by about this much. And I'm sitting there like this, watching the dog run across the, the shopping center parking lot. And then I realize, oh, wait, there's another dog that I lost. And so I run through the, the clinic, freaking out, and I come to the front, and they found the German Shepherd. And they're like, what happened? I'm like, well, I lost this dog, lost another dog. I don't know what's going on. My boss hears this. She yells at me, tells me to go look for this dog. I get in my car. She calls my dad, has him leave his job, come help me look for this dog. For three hours, we looked for this dog in the surrounding neighborhoods, and we found nothing. Nothing. Fortunately, a week later, they found this dog. I would scowl at it like, I hate you, stupid dog. I mean, I, I was, and, and as you can imagine, shortly thereafter, my employment was ended at this veterinarian clinic. It's very mutual. Um, 
But is this moment of just me recognizing this is not how it should be. I hated my job. Things are worth the way they're supposed to. People are mean to me. I did not like work. And all of you have had a job like this. You've all had a job like this. You've, you've been in a place, maybe you're in a job like this. You don't like your job. You don't like it at all. Things fall apart. Nothing goes the way that you thought it should or you wanted it to. Relationships are strained. And it, it's drudgery the majority of the day. And to you, in these moments, work doesn't feel like it's a good gift from God, but it feels like it's a consequence of the fall. Like it feels like the idea would be, the ideal would be me never working again and just hanging out forever. That feels like the ideal because of what sin has done to work. See, the fall ruined all that God created work to be. But then God sent his son. God sent his son, and Jesus came to be what Adam and what you and I had failed to be, an image bearer of God. He came to be the perfect image bearer of God. In Romans 5, the way Paul talks about Jesus, he talks about Jesus as a kind of second Adam, a kind of second Adam who's come to be a perfect representation of God on earth. Look at Colossians 1.15. Don't turn there. It'll be on the screen behind me. Listen to how Paul describes him in Colossians 1.15. He says this, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. See, Jesus is the true and perfect image bearer of God. He is the physical picture of the invisible God. He came to be all that we failed to be. He came to show us what God looked like and what it meant to be an image bearer again. And just like Adam in the garden, Jesus was given a job to do. Just like Adam in the garden, he was given a job to do. He was going to show us how to be image bearers even in our work. And what's really interesting, when you read the scriptures, think about it. Jesus' first job was not as a preacher or teacher or healer or leader. That's not Jesus' first job. No, his first job is as a blue-collar worker. That's his first job. The majority of his life, for almost two decades, he works an ordinary job. With his hands, manual labor, carpenters, some people think he was a mason. For 20 years he did that. That should give you such encouragement for your work. The God of the universe is here wrapped in flesh, here to save his people from sin and Satan and death, to give us eternal life forever. And the first thing he does is he works an ordinary job in an ordinary town with ordinary people. It's the first thing he does. You think Jesus wasn't called to that job? Think he wasn't called to that job? You think maybe he hadn't been praying enough or he wasn't spiritual enough? Think maybe this, that, that job was a sign of God's small plans and, sm and small affection for him? No, of course not. No, this job is a testimony that what it means to be human, we have to work. That we're made to work and that we're made to work in the mundane. Jesus worked for almost 20 years and no one noticed he was God. Did you ever think about that? He worked for 20 years and no one noticed that he was God in the flesh. Just a normal guy working a job because he's showing us what image bearers look like. See, Jesus working the majority of his life in a job like this shows us that we were made to work, but we're not defined by our work. We're made to work, but we're not defined by it. Our title doesn't define us. See, Jesus is able to work in this, on the low totem pole of society job. And no one notices him at all. He's able to work and be content and happy in his job because his work does not define him. His title does not define him. His salary does not define him. His father defines him. 
his father gives him value so he can enjoy his work. See, most of us, that's hard to imagine because we define ourselves by our work, by our title, by our salary, by our status. We're always frustrated thinking that, no, the next job, higher up the ladder, more benefits, less work to do, then I'll be happy, then I'll be satisfied, then I'll be content. Can I just tell you that's not true? That's not true. There are people in this church who've gotten the job you want, have ascended to the top of the ladder where you want to be, and guess what? There's no more happiness up there. There's no more joy up there. We're made to be defined by our Father, not by our work. So we need to hear that. Jesus is a great example of that. But also, on the flip side, we're not supposed to be defined by our work, but we're still made to work. We're made to work. We're not made to sit around all day and do nothing. So if the Son of God can get off his throne and work in manual labor for 20 years, we can get off the couch and get a job. Amen? Right? If, if he can get off the throne and work with his hands for 20 years, then there's no job that's below us. There's no job that's below any person. Because the Son of God worked a normal job for almost 20 years. We were made to work. Not to be defined by it, but to, we were made to work. And Jesus would eventually transition out of this job. He'd eventually transition out of this job, showing us that your job isn't forever. Things will change. It did for Jesus. And he, be, he went, entered into his public ministry of preaching and teaching and leading and healing. And ultimately, he would be headed to the cross, the most difficult work of his life. And all the while, all the while, Jesus' work was defined by the things that Adam's work and our work was meant to be defined by, joy and service, joy and service. See, at the cross, the most difficult work of Jesus' life, we see joy and service as his driving motivation. See, the cross is the most underpaid, underappreciated, low-status, destructive work in the history of the world. The cross makes your worst day in my busiest season look like nothing. It's the hardest work of Jesus' life. You know what motivates him to do his work? Joy and service. Look at Hebrews 12, too. Be on the screen behind me. Hebrews 12, too. Looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He's the image bearer showing us what it means to work. And the hardest work of his life, what motivates him? It says the joy set before him. The joy set before him. It was hard. It was difficult. He didn't even want to go. Yet he endured for what? For joy. He knew God would give him joy in the end. But also service, since he's the founder and perfecter of the faith. He's building a faith for other people. His work is in service to other people. See, where Adam and Eve failed to image God in the garden in a perfect world and lost everything, Jesus imaged God perfectly in a world bent on destroying him and ravaged by sin, and he brought back all that we lost in the garden. This is the gospel for our work. Jesus is the worker you and I should have been. I mean, think about that for a second. Probably never late to a meeting. He didn't complain about his job. He didn't use it as an excuse for why he could do whatever he wanted. He's the worker we should have been. He's amazing. He is so impressive when you think about all the ways we fail to work the way we're supposed to. And then Jesus died 
for all the times we didn't work the way we should, for all the times we went to work to define us, for all the times we neglected how God made us and didn't work, Jesus died for that, and then he rose again. He rose again saying we had been forgiven of everything and gave us his spirit so we could now begin to resemble God again in our work, in joy, in service. Do you feel underpaid at your job? Do you feel underappreciated at your job? Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. He's the most underpaid, underappreciated worker in the history of the world. Yet he stayed faithful because he knew God would take care of him. Do you work in a toxic work environment that's unjust the majority of the time? Look to Jesus, who suffered and his work was under the most unjust penalty, death for our sins. Do you, do you feel like you can't go to work another day? I can't do this job for another day. Look to Jesus. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he's saying, Father, is there any other work, any other way we could go about this? But he trusts him and says, I know you'll be faithful to me, Father. Even though this work is hard, I know you'll get me through. I know you'll give me strength. And I know there's joy coming for me. Look to Jesus. See, when we lack joy and service in our work, we need to remember the gospel. We need to go back to Jesus and go back to his word and say, tell me who I am. Tell me what's true. Tell me how you feel about my job because he cares about it. Even when no one else does, even when you don't. See, the gospel gives us strength to work well when no one else can because we have a master and inheritance that no one else has. I want you to hear that. If you read in the New Testament, Colossians uh, 4 and Ephesians 6, the way Paul motivates the church, he says, you can work well when no one else can because you have a master and an inheritance coming that no one else has. It's the gospel that motivates us to work. But until Jesus comes back, let me be honest with you, until he comes back, we're going to struggle to have joy and service in our work. We're going to struggle to enjoy our work and to do it for the benefit of other people because this world's still in sin. The curse is still on work. It's still sometimes futile and difficult and feels impossible. See, we're still in the third act of the story. We're still in the redemption phase. Restoration's coming, but it hasn't come yet. And so when working this way feels impossible, when it feels impossible to have joy in your work, when it feels impossible to do this for the benefit of other people, Remember that you're not home. Remember that you're not home, that God's not done with this world yet. There's still one act of the story to come. When Jesus comes back and he restores everything, where God is on the earth with his people and we finally image him properly again the way we were meant to in the garden. When he redeems work and it's the way it should be, where it's always fruitful, where things don't fall apart, where our work is always a joy to us and always in service to others. This is the gospel for our work. So I want to close our time by coming back to where I started, talking about calling. What are you called to do? What are you called to do? I mean, what do you want to do? What do you have the ability to do? What opportunities has God given you for your profession? You may not know the answer to all these questions. I may just have raised them for the very first time, but you need to start answering them, church. You start answering them. As a child of God, you have the freedom to be honest about what you desire. 
I was talking to a couple guys this past week, and I had to encourage them and say, what do you want to do with your life? And we have like the road answer, well, I should want these things. I go, I know what maybe you should want, but what is actually the desire of your heart? You're a child of God. You can be honest. Your father loves you, and he's given you desires. What do you, what do you have the ability to do? What are you actually good at, and what are you not good at? See, we're not defined by our giftedness, so we can be honest that we're good at some things and not good at others. And what opportunities do you have? What has God actually brought to you? Not in some fictional world that doesn't exist, but in this actual world, what opportunities has he given you? You can trust your father that whatever opportunity he gives you, even if it's one you don't necessarily want, that is exactly what you need because he runs this world for our good. And yes, there will be, you need to hear me, there's going to be seasons when the answer to these three, three questions of desire, ability, and opportunity don't line up. Where you're not working your dream job. Where you know that what you're doing isn't going to be forever for you. But you need to be reminded that no job is forever. No job is forever. Me being a pastor is not forever. It's a season. It doesn't define me. And even when you, if you're in a job that you don't even necessarily love a ton, you need to remember that this is exactly where God has you and that we still need to work. Because we want to show this city that God cares about our work. That God is not some God refined to just this church world where just pastors live, but he's, he's in every corner of every office, in every industry, in every field, that he cares about our work, and the way you work shows that to other people. See, where you are, whatever job you have, you can know for sure from God's word, it is not some JV calling. It is not some JV role that God has given you, but whatever job he's given you, in whatever season it is, for however long it is, that is a gift to you. And that is his calling on your life to do, to do that job well. See, this is the beauty and the greatness of the gospel this whole series has been about. This whole series has been trying to explain to you and to our city that the gospel is good news. That no matter the circumstance, no matter the situation, no matter the relationship, and no matter the job, the gospel is a power for all who believe. That's a power to heal when all is broken. It's a power to hope when all seems lost. It's a power for joy when all is taken away. This gospel of our king is the best news in the world. And this gospel changes everything. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for your word. For your word that tells us who we are, your word that tells us what you called us to, your word that tells us that we're loved by you and that you're taking care of us. God, all because of Jesus. God, if, any, if we get anything from this series, God, would you make us a people who think about and meditate on and talk about your gospel often? That what defines us wouldn't be our job or relationships, but God, what defines us is you. What gives us value is you, and that in turn enables us to enjoy all the good gifts you've given us, including work. God, I pray for those people, God, who don't like their job, who feel purposeless in it. God, would you remind them that it's not purposeless to you? Would you remind them that their Savior worked a normal job for the majority of his life? Would you remind them that the gospel gives them access to joy and power where they are right now, not someday in the future? And God, for those of us, you've, got, you've given us occupations we enjoy. God, make us people who show the world 
how great your gospel is. That we would work in such a way with joy and service because we have a master and an inheritance that no one else has. Oh God, I want your gospel to find my life. God, we want your gospel to be what wakes us up and what sends us to bed. We want your gospel to be how we work. God, we want to be a people who believe it more than anything. Father, do what only you can do and make us image bearers again to show this world what you're like. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.